Hello, my name's Alex Rutkeen. I'm a barrister at Third and Essex Chambers, specialising in mental capacity law. And what I want to do with you for the next 20 minutes or so is really take stock of how to apply the Mental Capacity Act during the pandemic. I'm recording this uh, in December 2021. It might be that restrictions change up or down for over the next few months. So I'm not going to talk specifically about individual regulations, say I'm trying to give the bigger pitch about how to apply the Mental Capacity Act as a piece of legislation which has never been changed during the pandemic in the circumstances that are applying. So to do that, I want to share some slides and then we can take it from here. So I just want to start with something which I think actually bears repetition frequently. The first is the difference between law and guidance. The law is the law means well, one of its consequences are is you have to follow it. And if you don't follow the law, you might be committing a criminal offence. An example of the law here, for instance, are the self-isolation regulations, which explain what you have to do or not do if you have been told, for instance, by NHS Test and Trace that you've had a positive result. But the law, for instance, in most cases, doesn't prevent visits in care homes and hospitals. And I'm going to come back to visits in care homes a little bit later because it's an issue which continues to cause real heartache for, for everybody. Guidance. We've got stacks of guidance coming out. We keep having guidance coming out and it keeps being updated. We should follow it. It's not just being issued for fun. It's being issued, not least, because the government is trying to help people think through, well, both English government, Welsh government. I'm really going to be focusing on England here, by the way. Government is focusing on how to help people try and navigate what is an incredibly difficult and continually changing circumstance. You should follow it, but it's not the law. The important thing is that if, for instance, an organisation doesn't follow it, they may well be in a position where they're not able to say they're making the right sorts of decisions. So, for instance, the visiting guidance in relation to care homes and hospitals sets out frameworks for thinking about how care homes should be approaching things. If they don't follow the guidance, it's going to be more challenging for them to say we were doing the right thing in any given circumstance. Let's just do a refresher about thinking in general about how to make decisions for people aged 18 and above. I'm not talking about under 18s here. There's a, a separate chart now you can look at about the Mental Capacity Act and 16, 17 year olds if, if that's something you're troubled about. The Mental Capacity Act has never changed as a piece of legislation from the beginning of the pandemic, and I cannot imagine it will be changing going forwards. So start of a 10, the person should be supported to take their own decisions, testing, flu vaccination, COVID vaccination, self-isolation. How do we think about supporting people to make their own decisions? Well, if you're trying to get a refresher on this, I've done a shed and art about capacity. If they can't make their decision, how to think this through? The Mental Capacity Act provides us the framework. There's more detail about this in my uh, shed and art on best interest decision making, but just reminding ourselves of a few key points. If it is a medical treatment decision, they might have made an advanced decision to refuse it. If it's valid and applicable, it's as if they're standing there saying, no, there is no best interest decision for anybody else to take. They might have appointed an attorney. In relation to an attorney, please make sure you check, and there's nothing wrong with you checking and asking to see it. In fact, you should be asking to see it. And if you can't see the power, make sure you're checking also with the Office of the Public Guardian. Is the power of attorney registered? 
first and foremost. If it's not registered, it's not a power of attorney. Is it a power which actually covers the decision in question? If it's a property and affairs lasting powers of attorney or it's an enduring powers of attorney, that will only ever give the attorney authority to make decisions relating to property and affairs. Health and welfare power of attorney is giving authority to make decisions about welfare matters and healthcare matters. If there is that power of attorney and the attorney, valid power of attorney, and the attorney is standing there saying, this is what I think should happen, it is as if they are the person themselves with one really, really important difference. They have to act in the best interests of the person. That means if you are a professional engaging with the attorney, you need in the back of your mind to be thinking, is this decision being made by the attorney actually in the best interest of the person? An example being, say, for instance, the attorney saying, I don't want mum to have the COVID vaccination. You might think that um, it wasn't that person's best interests to have the COVID vaccination. You would then need to have a discussion with the attorney about why the person was saying no. If the person was saying no, and we'll come back to this because they thought that the, it was very clear their mother wouldn't want it because that's what their mother wouldn't want, that might potentially mean it's not in their best person's best interest to have it. If actually what's going on is the attorney is doing something which is really reflecting the attorney's own concerns, and you think that actually it really genuinely is in this person's best interest to have it, can't reach a proper resolution, please go and find a grown up in the shape of the court. You might come across a deputy. It's very unlikely you're gonna come across a health and welfare deputy. There are very few of them. It's very likely you might come across a property and affairs deputy appointed by the court of protection to manage a person's money. If there isn't an advanced decision governing the position, if there isn't an attorney or a deputy around, then we're in this collaborative zone to identify collaboratively what do we think is in this person's best interest, which then allows relevant people to do relevant things, normally going to be relying on Section 5 Mental Capacity Act because they reasonably believe they're acting in the person's best interests. Critically important, please remember there is no such thing as the next of kin in context of Mental Capacity Act. Never, ever allow yourself to see a consent form signed by the next of kin for somebody aged 18 plus. Unless in fact, what they're doing is signing it as the person's attorney. It's really important to understand that you cannot take consent from somebody else if the individual concerns doesn't have capacity and they're over 18. You have to use the Mental Capacity Act process to work out how to proceed. Remember, you can't always get what you want, whether or not you can make your own decisions. If there's one thing the pandemic has taught us, that is the case for everybody. And there might be things which, for instance, public authorities with stretched resources simply aren't able to offer X, in which case it's not on the table for purposes of thinking about best interests. The interrogation should go on as to why it's not on the table. But if it's not on the table, it's not there to be chosen for under best interest, chosen on best interest basis. If there's a doll's authorization for in place with the person at the care home, you need to be careful about what's said and what um, the care home can say they can do. In particular, it's really important to understand that the deprivation liberty safeguards authorization is saying this person is deprived of their liberty at the care home. We have been through a series of checks and balances. It is in their best interest and necessary and proportionate to the risk of harm that they'll be at if they weren't here. It is not saying. Um, giving, for instance, the care home the power to say if to anybody else to remove, if anyone else tries to take them away, you are automatically un acting unlawfully, we have to call the police. It's more complex than that. Please go and find a lawyer 
if you're in that sort of situation. Let's just think through some of the key dilemmas, um, just so we're making sure we thought about them properly from an MCA perspective. If the person's got capacity to make their own decisions and they choose to decide not to comply with guidance, that's their choice. But they will be breaking the law if they've been told to do so. If the person doesn't have capacity to make decision making, uh, to have capacity to, to decide to self-isolate, decision making has to take place on their behalf. It's really important here to think about the balance of risk to the person in terms of self-isolation versus not self-isolation. The DHSC issued emergency MCA dolls guidance uh, earlier in the pandemic. It's now been withdrawn. I'm really annoyed actually they withdrew all of it because some of it was really helpful in terms of thinking through dilemmas about self-isolation, say, because it recognised, and this it must still be the case, there might be in some situations where actually legally the self-isolation regulations bite and they should be self-isolating, but it might be so distressing to them to be required to self-isolate. For instance, an autistic person simply could not cope with the change in their routine, that actually it's not in their best interest to do so. If they cannot understand, use and weigh and retain the fact that they're committing a criminal offence by not um, uh, complying with a legal obligation to self-isolate, in, in general terms, there's no way in which they could be prosecuted criminally. So people have to think these through carefully. Please can I emphasise self-isolation, especially where someone doesn't have ability to make their own decisions, is always to me triggering thoughts of at a minimum, is this person going to have their liberty restricted? And they might well, in fact, have their liberty deprived. If there is a deprivation of liberty, you need to make sure that there is proper authority for that. I'm not going to here talk about how to get proper authority, but if you watch the Shedinar on deprivation of liberty, that will talk through some of those mechanisms. In terms of vaccination, and this is COVID vaccination, I'm particularly focused on, but to be honest, it equally applies for flu vaccination. Start to pretend, does the person have capacity to give consent? Can I just flag, you may well have situations where the individual concerned who's going to be administering the vaccine needs to ask themselves, is there a reason to think this person doesn't have capacity to give them consent here? If there is, they need to take the steps required by the Mental Capacity Act uh, see my Shadonar on capacity to think through how to support the person to make sure that they are actually able to give consent. Because if they actually administer the vaccination, the vaccine in circumstances where the person can't consent, in reality, that is a coded or a disguised best interest decision. We do need to be clear. If the person really genuinely doesn't have capacity to make the decision, we're into best interest zone. Number one red point, no blanket decisions. Not having capacity to make decisions about vaccination is not code for mandatory vaccination. You will see, I've given you there, all the cases where the reported cases where the courts have spoken as at December 2021 about vaccination. I should say there are an awful lot more cases than this now, but these are being held by uh, so-called lower tier judges. These were senior judges hearing these cases. All the cases now are held by lower tier judges because the principles are now so clearly set out. The principles are, it is person-centered. It may very well be in their best interest to have it. If you don't know anything about the person, you might though know that they are the sort of person who would like to be a responsible citizen. 
And part of vaccination we know is not just in your own interests, it's in the interests of others. We might think that's something we know about them or we might reasonably think about them. But it's really important to understand that this is trying to start as much as possible with what would this person want? And I will just give you the example SS as an example where vaccination was not in this person's interests. This was an older person. She now had dementia pre-development or before her dementia advanced, had advanced to the point where she couldn't make uh, treatments about vaccination or indeed about other, other forms of medical intervention. She had been very clear she did not agree with conventional medicine. She'd been very clear she didn't agree ever, for instance, to have the flu vaccine. At the point when the case was before the court, the risks to her from developing uh, COVID were sufficiently low, not least because she never left the place where she lived, the care home where she lived. No one ever came to see her. The risks were sufficiently low. It was known uh, uh, that she really, really wouldn't have wanted it. And also it was clear that it restraint would have been required to bring about um, the vaccination. And the judge putting all of those factors together said, person-centered decision, it is not in her best interest to have this decision. And it's clear because he emphasized that if this had been a purely clinical decision, yes, clinically the sensible thing to do is always effectively to have a vaccination because it's medically recommended. But best interest is about the whole person. Can I say there are a lot of unreported cases going on where attorneys uh, or family members are saying we don't want X to have a vaccine. Obviously, attorneys, as I said a minute ago, in the start of a 10, it is their call on the person's behalf. But if there's proper reason to think they're not acting in the person's best interest and that can't be resolved by way of discussion, that's where the court needs to be involved. If family members are saying, I really, really don't want the person to have this, again, tease out, is it the family member's concern or is the family members thinking, as it were, trying to speak as the voice of the individual? And some of those cases, some of the cases don't need to go to court. Some of the cases do need to go to court. Essentially, the guiding principle is if someone then provides the vaccine to the person, are they able to say, I reasonably believe, A, the person has capacity, and B, I reasonably believe I'm acting in the person's best interests? And if there is a situation where there is a genuine disagreement, about what's in the person's best interest by amongst those involved in the person's welfare, it's extremely difficult to say that reasonable belief exists. The court of protection has to be involved to resolve the situation and needs to be involved sooner rather than later. Oh, I give myself a isolation twice because it's so important. Care home visiting, really important. Lawful unless the care home has been closed to visitors by director of public health. It's never ever been unlawful to visit care homes. Uh, even at the height of the first wave, we might now be heading to another wave. It's never been unlawful. This is always a situation of care homes following guidance. Obviously the guidance keeps changing. The first thing to do is check with the care home or the care home to make sure that it is applying the guidance, which is really trying to balance a number of really complicated issues here. One thing which is also sometimes helpful to have a recourse to, may sound a bit odd, but it's important to remember, in residents in care homes are consumers. It's not just we're thinking about human rights law, because human rights law actually, I should say, applies, for instance, in some slightly complicated ways in private care homes in relation to people who are self-funders or indeed uh, people who are funded by continuing healthcare. 
human rights law applies in some slightly complicated ways there, but people are consumers in private care homes and the Competition and Markets Authority has provided actually some quite useful guidance about how consumer law applies, including things about visiting and also about termination of contracts. It's not pandemic specific, but provides some useful stress testing for people trying to do the right thing. And if there's a challenge about what the right thing is. Now, just giving a few thoughts about deprivation liberty safeguards, the Dole's emergency guidance has now been withdrawn, but it never changed the law. And so just to make clear, it has always been and is always lawful for remote assessments to take place. This is very different to the Mental Health Act. If you're the person carrying out the assessment, you need to decide if I'm doing this remotely, well, why am I doing this remotely? If I'm doing this for as it were, administrative convenience, I should tell you, I think the courts are quite likely to be slightly um, troubled by that. But if you're doing it remotely because, for instance, um, you are trying to minimise footfall in the care home where there's an outbreak going on, that's probably a very good reason that you're having to do it remotely. But if you're doing it remotely, you always need to think, have I got enough evidence? Actually, you should always think that in any assessment. If you can't access the person meaningfully, what other evidence have you got to draw on to make the determination? And you always need to be clear about how you've reached your conclusion, whether that be about capacity, whether that be about mental disorder, whether that be about whether it's deprivation liberties in the person's best interests. And if you've adopted a situation where you know I'm doing the least worst thing, it's much more likely you're going to have to keep the situation under review. If you're not seeing the person to consider the capacity, person in person to consider capacity, are you complying with section 1.3 mental capacity? That is a really good question to ask yourself. 1.3 says take all practicable steps to support the person to make their own decision. Not seeing the person, can I say actually I'm as it were doing something or not doing something practicable? I would just say we've now discovered enough cases to allow me to make this point that there might be a situation where actually seeing the person remotely is weirdly a practicable step. An autistic, younger, tech savvy person might be much more comfortable with doing something by Zoom than having you or by Teams or whatever, pick your platform of choice, than having you in their personal space. But that's thinking about more tools to help things through, not defaulting to remote because admin convenience. So. And also just lastly, there might be situations where it's necessary to make use of older material. Some situations, dolls, you have to make sure that each assessment, unless it relates to age, is within the relevant time frame. But it doesn't mean that you can't say, I am assessing this person at point A, I'm relying on stuff which is older than 12 months, say, in relation to mental disorder. But I've taken that into account, my conclusion right here, right now, based on that, in part based on that material, but in also assessing that against what I know about the person now, I am concluding right here, right now, the person meets whichever criteria you are having to talk about. So the key message is the Mental Capacity Act still applies. Principles are your moral compass. You might well need to consider revisiting best interest decisions made on the basis of scarce resource and due course. This is particularly so in, for instance, situations where um, very well, seeking to discharge people more rapidly from hospital than might necessarily otherwise be the case, for instance. 
and as it were, go to the first available place, not the place which might ultimately be in their best interest, need to revisit. And I can't emphasize this last point enough. Advanced care planning is something we have realized in different stages of the pandemic has not been done desperately well. I've done a, a, a Shedonar. In fact, my very first Shedonar um, during the pandemic was about advanced care planning because I was so stressed about what I was hearing. Uh, and there's a Shedonar all about it. Critically, keep a very wary eye out to see that it's being done with, not to the person. Thinking about what might be the right thing to do or not to do in advance is a really, really good idea. But it's really important that is a process which involves the person, either because they've got capacity to participate, or if they don't have capacity to participate, it is drawing on what we know in good faith from everybody who might be able to shed light on what the right thing to do might be. So lastly, some resources. That top link there is our resources page in Chambers. You are uh, on there, you can find cases, all those cases, for instance, about vaccination, you can find there. You can find a guidance note about capacity, a guidance note about best interests. And that's where you can also find our mental capacity newsletter or new mental capacity report. It comes out monthly, it's free, and you can get the back issues there and subscribe to ones going forward. And there are some uh, further resources for you. Thank you very much indeed for watching.